My story about my heart starts with my head. I grew up as the oldest of three in an Air Force family, and we traveled the world. When my family moved back stateside, I found myself in Georgia. I went to high school where I met many Christians. I was witnessed at frequently, but I had questions and they were not answered to my satisfaction. By the time I was 17, I'd had enough of all these self-professed followers with imperfect lives telling me I needed God. So what? My life could be an imperfect mess too? No thanks. In some ways, I became my own worst enemy as I learned to trust my ability to reason above all else. This all-powerful, all-loving God had never given me the time of day. If God had given me five senses, surely he could appeal to one of them on his own behalf and clear this misunderstanding up about his existing. But as I look back now, I see evidence of something I didn't see then. In spite of all those feelings, I did have a tension in my heart about God. Eventually, this turmoil wore me down, so I had a conversation with God. I told him that I did not believe he existed and that this was his chance to prove to me that he did. I waited, I listened hard, and when the silence was over, I had the proof I needed and I became an atheist with a clean conscience. I met my wife in college. She was beautiful, intelligent, funny, but she was a Christian. She let me know that she expected her future husband to attend church with her. I did the math in my head and two hours on Sunday seemed like pennies to pay in exchange. We joined a married small group. Apparently, it's not common to show up on the first night and declare to everyone that they shouldn't expect you to pray because you don't believe in Jesus. But it was true. And our new friends were understanding, even when I wasn't. Along the way, I learned that a few of my assumptions about Christianity were way off. And inevitably, an old tension returned. One of the things that I came to appreciate about the Christian God was that people who were suffering would find hope in the idea of Him. The concept that God had compassion for them and forgave them seemed to fill a void that people needed filling. But this did me no good. I was not downtrodden. I was not desperate for love. I was making more money than I ever had. And yet the tension grew. I didn't expect what happened next. I had a disturbing realization. It occurred to me that I was 27 years old and that I was basically taking spiritual advice from a 17-year-old. And not just any 17-year-old, but the 17-year-old version of myself. This thought bothered me. It exacerbated the tension. I had changed my position on many things since then. I mean, at 17 you make decisions based on ideas. At 27, you factor in experience. This realization did not make me a Christian, but I came to a point of humility. I reasoned that if God did exist, it is possible he may not follow my template for revealing himself. I was frustrated. I wanted to know the truth, you know. Is God and or Jesus real? I got to a place where I didn't care if I'd been wrong. Deep down, I wanted to know the truth. So I prayed, God, if you actually exist, I recognize you may do things differently than I would if I were God. I'm open to you proving to me that you exist on your terms. This was the best my prideful heart could do. I prayed it, I believed it, and I didn't care how long it took. That was the turning point. That's when it became personal to me. 
I let go of a small piece of my pride that day, and I've never regretted a moment of it. In fact, I wish I could export it and share it with the world. That is the story of how my heart won over my head. That is my story. If you're not right now, it won't be because you got all of your questions answered. It won't be because every objection you have has gone away. Um, when something happens to you that is very personal, because Christianity in its very nature is personal, that is generally how adults become Christians. We tried to illustrate that last week by talking about why guys don't get married and what eventually gets them to the place where they do get married. They don't want to lose their freedom. They don't want to, they got a fear of commitment. They don't think they're going to have any money. Uh, they, they see miserable married friends and they think, you know, I don't know that. And even though most of us guys at one point in our life used to rattle off some, if not all of that list as to why we didn't think we ever wanted to get married. In fact, long time ago at Johnson Bible College, there was the SNAW club. Do you know what the SNAW club is? Seek Not a Wife. There was a, there was a club called Seek Not a Wife Club. But we said ultimately we fall in love with somebody and then and that all of a sudden marriage is not a category anymore. Marriage becomes really personal because there's somebody attached to this thing. And, and we don't just talk about marriage as some category. We talk about marriage to her. And it changes us. And we make decisions then that we you know, months or maybe years earlier we're not prepared to make. And so what we want to do is we, we would like to take some of the obstacles that you have to possibly becoming a Christian this morning and in this series called The Plunge. And instead of doing a series on why you should believe the Bible or why there's suffering in the world or, you know, what about other religions, and instead of trying to take your objections or your questions and try to deal with each individual question by itself and try and lay it to rest, instead of doing a series like that, we've decided to go a different route. Because the fact of the matter is, we could address all those things. We could talk about whatever your objection or your question is. And we could, I believe, spend a, a vast amount of time and exhaust whatever your objection is. And really, I believe at the end of it, probably, if not out-argue you, at least come to a draw. But even if we could convince you even if I was smart enough to get up here and address every question or every objection you've got and at the end of it have you go, okay, you, you just beat me in the argument. Let's just pretend I'm smart enough to do that. At the end of that argument, you're not going to lay all, all your objections down and run into the arms of Jesus. Basically what's going to happen is you're going to go through the rest of your life a little better informed. You'll be a little bit smarter. But this is just a heads up in case it ever happens for you. If you're a person who is... Um, on the outside of Christianity, for whatever reason that might be, if you had a bad church experience, if, if, if you prayed and God didn't answer your prayer, if uh, you, know, you ever become a follower of Jesus, chances are, are that it will not be because someone was able to put all your obstacles to the side. That's not going to do it. Something will happen that is so personal in nature, and all your questions... Um, 
will kind of fade in relationship to what Christ is doing in and around you. Because outside of Christianity, Christianity really is a category. I mean, if you're not a believer, then you've just basically talked about Christianity as something somewhere. It's a category for you. Religion is a category. God is a category. But God wants to make it personal. It, it kind of bugs me whenever I hear someone say this, and maybe you've heard somebody say this before, they say something like, I am committed to my marriage. I'm committed to my marriage. Doesn't that sound so loving? Can I just tell you, I want Myra to be committed to more than our marriage, right? I want her to be committed to me, and I want to be committed to more than just my marriage. I want to be committed to her. We don't want to just talk about being committed to the marriage. We, it's personal, and when you talk about just, I want to be committed to the marriage, that's a category out there somewhere. But when we talk about being committed to our spouse, now it's personal. Or when you talk about people, you hear people talk about having kids. Isn't it funny when you hear singles talk about uh, the time when the, it will come that they will have kids? When I was single, I used to, I, I, I don't remember this well, but my sister reminded me, I walked in one time at a family gathering and I made the statement that I was not going to refer to my children as kids. That's what you call a goat. I was so arrogant. I was so full of myself, thought I knew it all. And she said, oh, please. You know, have a couple and get back to me. It's funny when you hear them talk because, you know, all they've got, and that's all they, that's all they can do is think about the future and what could be, but you'll hear them say things like, well, I only want to have one. And they talk about kids as if it's a category. It's just something out there. It's not really personal, and it's a category for them. I want to have just one, and that's kind of where I was. I just wanted to have one. I mean, my wife and I talked about a lot of things before we got married. We did not talk about how many kids we were going to have. Then we got married, and she starts throwing out curved numbers, crooked numbers. And I'm thinking, you know, straight number, one, would be great. You hear married couples talk about how many uh, kids they think they want to have. And um, I would make the argument, I could make the argument for you this morning that, that every couple should only have two kids. I mean, I, I could make that argument and give you some logical reasons why one of them is transportation a lot of the cars that are made today um, if you really want an economical car a car that's going to get good gas mileage is probably smart that you get a smaller car and if you've looked at the back seat of a smaller car usually there's a little hump in between it's basically a four-seater it's not a five or six-seater to do that you have to go to a minivan and with the gas the price is the way it is now and 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 our economy it's just not smart to get a car that that's that big you should be smarter and get a smaller car and have fewer kids and that's one of the reasons that we could offer as to why two is better than three or four or six or nine or i could say it's way more expensive to have three kids than it is two kids and i don't know what the numbers are these days on raising kids i think i heard the other day that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred seventy one thousand dollars i think that's what i heard and to me that sounds cheap <laughs> i don't know about you but it seems like my kids cost more than that housing is an issue you have two kids you can have one of those jack and jill bathroom deals they can share one you have three kids now all of a sudden somebody's got their own bathroom and that's not going to fly right I mean, you can't have that. Mom, they're messing with my toothbrush. Mom, they're on my side. 
And then you've got the whole middle child syndrome. How many of you, just by a show of hands, are middle children? How many of you have been scarred for life because you're a middle child? You know, the firstborn comes along and we take pictures, we get video, we record in little books his first steps and the first words that he ever said. The second one comes along and, and has a little bit of glory for just a few brief years, if not months sometimes. And then the third and fourth or however many you have come along and, you know, his time in the sun is over. He got a little bitty thing and then the baby comes and they steal all the attention and it's just horrible. And, you know, what we do basically is we, we, we create um, work for a counselor somewhere one of these days down the road for this middle kid because he didn't get what the first one got and what the last one got. And parental attention, you kind of have to go into a zone. If you have more than two, my sister is fond of saying you're not really a true parent until you have three kids because if you have two you can split up and and you can take them one on one but when you go three kids you know they outnumber you and you find out how good you are or how bad you are as a parent and so there's lots of reasons why I could get up here and argue with you that two kids is better than three kids or more but you know what I could have that whole conversation with you and I could give you all the reasons but if you know me personally and you know what's going on in my house, you know that I have three kids. And I used to talk about, I just want one. And, you know, what I've learned as a married man is that a woman is going to get what she wants when it comes to the amount of kids that she wants. She just has a way. And I decided, you know, we're just going to do one, and no, Brett, we really should have two. No, you know, bread. Okay, okay, we'll have two. And I, she caught me in a weak moment and we had three. But I have three kids, so it's personal for me. Okay, when, when, when I can get up here and make all the arguments as to why we should just have two kids, but, but in my world, there's, there are three kids. And I, I cannot, in any capacity, look at Delaney and imagine not having her. And there's not an argument that you could make for me that would make me say, oh, yeah, we should have only had two kids. No. Because for me, it's personal because Delaney is in my world, and I love that little girl with all my heart. And so for me to think for a second that we would only have two and not have Delaney, see, when it's just a category, you can do that. When it's personal, you can't do that anymore, and every objection you've got goes away. You may have questions, you may have some objections, but you, you line your objections up with, this is Delaney. Well, that all goes away. I mean, we're not going to look at Delaney and say, sorry, honey, we were only going to have two, so we're going to send you to a house that only has no kids or one kid so they can pair you up. But we're not going to have three kids in our house. We wouldn't do that. What happens? The discussion moves from something that is categorical to something that is very personal. And in the same way, that is really how adults become Christians. It moves from a category to a place that it gets really personal for you and uh, you start to have some conversations and you start to think some things maybe that you've never thought before. The summary statement in all of Scripture, in all of Christianity, 
And you've heard this before. In fact, you may have this verse memorized. Most of you probably do have this verse memorized. But the summary statement in the New, in the New Testament is this. For God so, what is the next word? Loved. For God so loved the world. The introduction to Christianity, the introduction really to this whole thing about does God exist and, and all the other things is really so intensely personal that the change comes to a person's life when they realize God loves me. This huge God that has created everything that I've tried to deny or I've tried to say, you know, I can't get on board with all the arguments or whatever. I, it's gotten personal when I come to the place where I realize God so loved the world, I'm in the world, God loves me. And God is personal at that point. That's why everything goes upside down. That's, that's when the lights come on and you say, oh, you know, I, I didn't see that coming. That's when the obstacles get really small. When you become convinced that, uh, and you are open to the fact that God loves you, that God knows your name, and that not only does he know your name, but that he cares about you. I tell people all the time, you are the apple of God's eye. He is crazy, crazy in love with you. And if I only had one sermon and I had five seconds and they said, Brett, you're going to drop dead of a heart attack in five seconds. You've got five seconds to talk to your congregation. What do you want to tell them? I would say it until I died. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. I don't know how many adults I've run across who, who have a hard time believing that God loves them. I'm telling you, if that dawns on you, everything else on your list is going to fall away. Everything else on your list, all of your objections, all of your obstacles are going to get a whole lot smaller when it dawns on you, God loves me. That is how adults become Christians. God so loved the world that he did something. God so loved the world that he got involved. And today, I want to take you back to God's first involvement, a story that begins, um, uh, it basically is, the, is what why, what resulted in Christianity and um, the story doesn't begin with the appearance of Jesus 2,000 years ago it goes 2,000 years beyond that uh, into history and, and God got involved in a very personal way um, it is as if he illustrated how personal he was going to be throughout the rest of our lives with this one story he didn't send an FAQ he didn't send commandments he didn't send a letter he didn't um, send laws or a to-do list but God revealed himself on his own terms. And we're going to come back to that. That's going to be an important part of what we talk about this morning, that God demonstrates, he, he reveals himself on his own terms to one individual person. And it was as personal as it could possibly get. Um, in, in revealing himself to this one person, he did it in contrast to what everybody else thought about God. Because when God did this, he did it in the midst of a bunch of people who were very much like us. They viewed God as some kind of cosmic vending machine, and if you can just put enough quarters into it and figure out the code, then, then out is going to come all the things that you want. If you can just figure out how to appease this thing and give it what it wants, it will then give you what you want. That's kind of how these people looked at God. And if we're honest sometimes, that's how we look at God. So all over the world, people sacrificed animals. They sacrificed their small children. They sometimes sacrificed themselves. Sometimes they would cut themselves up. We think cutting is a new thing. They've been cutting themselves for years. It goes way, way back into history. They would do that to appease the gods. They pleaded. They burnt things. They did all kinds of things, trying to get God or the gods to do what they wanted them to do. And the world was full of superstition. It's full of 
all kinds of crazy ideas relative to God and who he was and how he worked. And families had their own personal gods. Real estate had its own, had their own gods. The sun, the stars, everything had a god. And people all over the place tried to deal with God, and to be honest, probably at some point in your life, you have negotiated with God the way these people were negotiating with God. Because there is something in us that says, God, here are my terms. Here is where I'm coming from, and here's what's important to me. And if you and I are going to have a conversation, God, you've got to get on board with, what, with these things, because this is my list, and this is important to me. And you've kicked the machine two or three times, and you didn't get anything in return, and so you throw your hands up in the air, and you turn around and walk off, and you say, that's it. It just doesn't work. There is no God, and that's all I've got to say, and I'm not going to have any more to do with it. That's the kind of world that God interrupted 4,000 years ago when, in the most personal of ways, he appeared to a man named Abram. You might know him as Abraham. Now, here's a story upon which Jews, Christians, and Muslims all agree. You won't find many places where, where we all agree, but in this particular case, we all agree um, that God's first interaction with human beings, really, after the fall of man, was with this individual named Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to start over. I want the world to understand who I am. I'm going to use you in a very intimate and personal way to make sure that they know who I am. And he told Abraham to pack up his family, which was really very small at the time. And that was really part of Abraham's problem, as we will see. And he said, I want you to move. I want you to move away from extended family. I want you to move from this region. I want you to leave all your household gods behind. I want you to leave what you understand about me behind. We're going to take you into a new era. I'm going to teach you some new things. And I'm going to do something big. And I'm going to do it in the most personal way possible. And I'm going to do it, Abraham, through you. This is the story that results in us being able to refer to God as Father. This is how this very, very personal thing begins. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And that is all the traditions, it's all the stuff he's known, it's everything that's familiar to him. And go to the land I will show you. And then he makes him three promises, and all three of these promises have come true. I will make you into a great nation, which he became the, 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 name, the nation of Israel. And I will bless you, will make your name great, I will make your name great. And everybody listening to me right now has at least heard of Abraham. And he's one of the most famous people that ever lived. We've all heard of Abraham. So that prophecy came true. And you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, Abraham, I'm going to do something for everyone, but I'm going to begin with a person because the theme of this whole thing is I want to be personal and I want to be intimately involved on a personal level with people. This isn't categorical. This isn't going to be some mysterious God thing. I don't want this to be religion. I want this to be more than that. I want it to be personal. So I've begun this thing with a conversation with a person with you, Abraham. I want to start with you, not because you've done anything right, because at the time, this is interesting, because at the time of Abraham's life, there was no law, there were no commandments, there was no, this is how you're supposed to do it. Abraham didn't have anything to go off of. 
And three chapters later, in chapter 15, the conversation continues. Verse 5. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. Well, God, don't, don't be ridiculous. I mean, you can't count the stars. You know, I mean, you look up there and they're everywhere. I mean, how in the world are you going to, you can't count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now there's a problem, and we don't know what Abraham's immediate response was, but if we could just pause for a minute, there's a problem. You see, Abraham is old, and his wife Sarah is old. They are way past the age where you're going to be having kids. They have zero children. They've wanted kids, but they've not been able to have any kids. And they've lived a long, long life. They've had a long marriage, and they have waited and waited and tried to have kids. And it just did not happen for Abraham and Sarah. And they'd done all they knew how to do. They, they had talked to their household gods. They had done every tradition they'd ever been taught they'd sought counsel from other people and people said hey if you want to have kids you should try to do this and they've done every wives tale everything you can imagine so that they could have what everybody else seemed to have which was a house full of kids just didn't happen for abraham and sarah and they were embarrassed because even their servants could have kids but sarah and abraham had no children and now it seemed that God was going to play with them. It seemed as if God was even mocking Abraham. And God says, now, Abraham, count the stars. And that's how many offspring you're going to have. And Abraham's thinking, but God, we, we don't even have one offspring. And my wife is old, and we, we can't, God, we're too old to have kids. So what do you do with that? And this next little statement is huge. It's kind of the compass for the rest of the Bible. And it is the compass, it really is the starting point of faith. Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. Wait, Abraham, you, you just can't believe. You, you just can't, you just can't, without any resistance, believe. I mean, you're, you, you know, look at the stars, and I'm going to give you offspring that number in the, the amount of stars in the sky. I mean, you, and you say you believe that and you, you didn't offer any resistance at all. You don't have any questions. You don't have any objections. Abraham, you can't just believe. How? Where are they going to come from? Abraham believed the Lord, and this next thing is huge, and if you think you're ever going to embrace Christianity, if you're here this morning and you've never become a Christian, but there's a chance, maybe one day, you will come to Christ, just carry this with you in your disbelief until you get to that point. Listen to what it says. Abraham believed the Lord, and what does God do? He credited it to him as righteousness. In this moment, there are no Ten Commandments. There is no law. There are no standards. There is no church. There's nothing. There is nothing for Abraham to compare himself to to know whether he's good or bad. He's got nothing. He's just a man that lives in a culture that really has no standard for what behavior should look like. There's just Abraham in a conversation with God. And the Bible tells us that when Abraham said, God, I don't know how and I don't know how long and I don't know where you've been, but I believe you, in that moment, God gave to Abraham a righteous standing. It says that he gave him the gift 
of righteousness. Now, if, if you're new to church and if you, you get tired of preachers using big, long words, let me help you understand this word righteousness, what it means. When you hear the word righteous or righteousness, I hope your mind translates that into right standing with God. So when you hear righteousness, that's just a fancy way to say that you have a right standing with God. So if you're righteous, you have a right standing with God. Abraham was credited as righteousness, not because of anything that Abraham had done, because Abraham, he didn't have a church to go to. He couldn't go to church five times in, you know, in, in a row and say, God, look at this cool thing I've done. Are you happy with me now? He didn't, there wasn't a standard for how many times you pray to God and please God or how much money you give or what kind of clothes you wear or anything like that. He didn't have a standard. He didn't, he didn't know how to, to please God. There were no commandments. There was no, hey, don't do that. We don't, we don't do that. The only commandment Abraham had was go outside and count the stars. And as far as Abraham was concerned, that's kind of a joke. Abraham had done nothing, and God said, Abraham, as a testimony to the rest of the world, and to get this thing kicked off, I'm going to give you a right standing with me. Not because you've done anything, but because you have made a decision, and with all the questions that you could have asked, that you didn't ask me, and you, you just, all you've done is you've just simply trusted me. And so because of that, Abraham, I'm going to give you a right standing with me. Not because you've done anything other than you've trusted me. And Abraham still didn't know what was going to happen. He had no idea why God would allow him to live so long without kids and why he would allow his wife to go through the pain and suffering that she's gone through, wanting kids and seeing everybody else have kids and, and the pain that comes from that. And he's probably laid awake at night, holding her in his arms, listening to her cry, thinking to himself, man, why can't we have this? Abraham had no answers, none. But in that moment, what God said is, I'm going to come to you on my own terms and I want you to respond to me. And this is key on my terms. That's what God says to us. I want you to respond to me on my terms. I just want you to believe me. And the Bible says that Abraham trusted God and that God, in exchange for his faith, gave him a correct standing with God. And it's, that's how it's been ever since. That's how every one of us comes to Christ. Not because we're good enough. We are not going to heaven and we are not saved. It drives me nuts. Do you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. Ugh. Drives me crazy. Because we, we've gotten ourselves convinced that we can behave our way into heaven. You can't. The only way you get into heaven is a right standing with God. The only way. And the Bible's very clear. You can't do that on your own. You can't do that for yourself. And it started with Abraham. And the moral of the story is a simple one. God comes to men and women on his terms. And the very nature of a relationship with God always begins on God's terms, not on our terms. Now, if you could set your objections to the side and your questions aside just for a moment, let me ask you this question. Isn't that what you would expect from a huge God? Can you really respect a God that when you approach him, he just kowtows to whatever you want and says, you know, I'll do whatever you want. I just want you to believe in me. I mean, is that the kind of God you want to believe in? Is that the kind of God you want to serve? If there is a God, 
and I believe that there is, it only stands to reason for me that if I'm going to have a relationship with him, I will have a relationship with him. I mean, after all, he did create the sun, moon, and the stars. He did create me. He did create everything that I see. And if he's powerful enough to do all that, and he's powerful enough to create my mind, and we get ourselves convinced that we're so smart, but God made our mind, and we think we've got these great arguments for God, and God says, I don't care about your arguments. I don't care about your questions right now. This is what I want to know. I want to know if you are going to come to me and deal with me on my terms. That's the only way this happens. God said, I'm going to take care of your biggest problem. And your biggest problem is not your mortgage. It's not your wife. It's not your mother-in-law. Your biggest problem is you have a sin problem. And you are separated from me. But I'm going to fix that problem. If there is a God that says, I'm going to give you a right standing in me based on your confidence in me, if there is a God that big, wouldn't you expect him to have a right to say, if we're going to have a relationship, it's going to have to be on my terms? Because my terms are the questions that I've not gotten answered, right? Your terms are, are you know, somebody you, you went to church one time and somebody betrayed you and you've never gotten over it. Your terms are, you know, God didn't answer my prayer. Your terms are, I've pumped quarters into the machine, I've kicked the side of the machine, it will not give me what I want. And so I've thrown my hands up in frustration, and I've walked away, and I've said, that machine doesn't work. My issues are suffering in the world. Personal suffering. You know, maybe you say, my issue is I read the Bible, and I don't understand what it's saying. My, my issue might be, you know, I don't understand God, the whole miracle thing. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, all the miracles in, that I read in Scripture. It just doesn't make any sense to me. You have all kinds of terms on which you like for God to deal with you, but if he's God, should we be surprised? Should we be shocked? Should we be offended that he would reserve the right to come to his people that he loves on his own terms? in spite of our obstacles and our questions and our objections, for God so loved the world, he gave. He got involved and he comes to us on his terms. I want to take you to Matthew 18 and in this passage, Jesus is teaching. This is really pretty cool. Um, Jesus' disciples were confused a lot. And we make fun of the disciples, you know, it's kind of sport for preachers to kind of make fun of disciples and for us in our retrospect world to look back and see the disciples and think, you know, aren't they funny the way they didn't understand Jesus. The fact of the matter is, if I had been one of the disciples, I would have looked a whole lot worse in scripture than these guys did. Anything Peter did, I could have messed up a whole lot better than Peter did. So, you know, we're pretty hard on, on these guys and we shouldn't be. We probably would have been a whole lot worse. But they were constantly confused. And Jesus is teaching. Sometimes he's not clear and they don't get it. Sometimes he's crystal clear and they still don't get it. And he's talking, he's doing parables, and they're scratching their head and they can't figure it out. And, and, and they've heard him talk enough that one of the things they believe about Jesus is he is at some point going to throw down and he's going to overturn the Roman government and he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and he is going to be the king of kings on earth and he's going to be like the big president of the whole world and they're thinking in their minds and we're his followers so if he's the king 
then it stands to reason that when all this happens and we can't wait for this to happen, we're going to be pretty important. And so they're thinking those of us who have been faithful to him are probably in line for pretty good jobs. So they wondered things like, you know, Jesus, who among the 12 of us is the greatest? Which one of us that's following you around right now do you like the best? Which one are you really close to? And which one, when you really throw this thing down and turn it all upside down, are you going to point to and say, take it? Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that question has been asked, assuming that their name would be the name that was going to be called. Jesus, who is going to be the greatest? In other words, who's the closest? Who's the one that you really lean into and the one that you count on? Who's the one that you think can handle this the best? And who's worked the hardest? Who has earned the right? Who was here first? He called a little child and had him stand among them. You have to pause. Jesus, Jesus, who's the greatest? And Jesus points to a little boy or a little girl and he says, hey, honey, you, right? Yeah, you. Come here for just a minute. And he's, you know, I picture Jesus, and in the pictures we all saw in Sunday school, you picture Jesus under that tree or on a stoop. Hey, honey, come here. Come here. Yeah, just for a minute. It's okay. Come here. And he brings this little kid. He says, could you, could you just stand right here in front of me for a minute? I, I want all these men who are asking these questions right now, I want them to see you. And I don't, don't need you to do anything. Just, and just trust me, it's going to be okay. But just let these guys look at you for just a minute. You're helping me right now. And so you have this little boy or this little girl standing in front of Jesus and looking up at Jesus like, you know, what's going on? And all these men have just wondered, who's the greatest? And I think maybe Jesus paused. Jesus, maybe you didn't understand the question. We're asking you, who's the greatest? We're asking you who you're going to put in charge. I mean, this is all going to turn upside down at some point. You're going to need some help. Which? Who? Who's going to be the greatest? Now let's pause for a minute. See, that's a really good question. And if I were you and if I had experienced the life that you have experienced with its disappointments and its pains and if I had gone through some of the things that you've gone through that have raised some of the objections that you have and some of the questions that you have I would probably approach God very similar to the way you are and I'm not up here at all discounting that your objections are very real valid objections the questions you have are real and I am not for one second ridiculing your question I respect your questions we all have questions. And I'm, I'm sure that whatever it is that's an obstacle between you and God is a very valid thing. These guys had a valid question. Jesus, who's the greatest? And Jesus didn't say anything. Instead, he's got this little boy standing there. And, and, Jesus, we're looking for a name. And he pauses and he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change, you smart guys you smart disciple guys of mine that have been following me around watching and listening to me teach unless you change 
unless something about the way you think changes. You mean change like we need to do more, we need to jump higher, we need to be more obedient or more holy, or we need to pray more. We need to, there's something we can do more or better. Is that what you mean? No, no, no. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, wait, wait, what about the Ten Commandments? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. What about us being faithful followers? Mm-mm. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're willing to become like children, unless you're willing to come to the Father on his terms instead of your own, you are never going to get there. There will always be an obstacle. God says, unless you're willing to come on my terms and not your own, no matter how hard work you work, no matter how good you are, you're never going to get there. This happens, God says, on my terms. Verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can I push back just a little bit on any apathy that you may have or on any objection that may be in your mind or your, you know, whatabouts kind of thing, the things that are hanging you up? You see, there is a subtle, very subtle thread that goes through your arguments and your objections. And we all kind of have this. There is this pride that threads its way through our resistance to God. And and the pride, if we were to peel back the layers and to look at it, looks a little like this. And it, it sounds a little like this. It sounds like this. God, you owe me. You, you owe me an explanation. You owe me an answer. You owe me a statement as to why that should or should not have happened. You owe me. You owe it to me to be clearer. God, you owe me. God, we need to sit down at my table and talk about this like you owe me. Because I've got some issues and I've got some problems and I'm not happy about some things. And you've got some, God, you have some explaining to do to me. But folks, you don't want a God that small. You don't want a God who is intimidated by you. And you don't want a God who would pander to you and say, well, if that's what it's going to take to get you to follow me, okay, I'll come to your terms, I'll do it your way. You don't want a God who thinks so much of you and so little of himself that he would deal with you and deal with me like that. You wouldn't have any respect for a God like that. We get real clarity here with two words. Abraham said, I'm going to trust you even though I don't have answers to my questions. I don't know how you're going to give me you know, offspring that would number the stars in the sky. I have no idea. I'm just going to, you say it, I believe it. I just don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe it. You've got to decide, yeah, I've got obstacles and questions and things that are in the way, but if you're able to be known, I trust you. And I'm going to come like a child, and I'm going to come on your terms, not on my terms, because that's not humility. 
the two words that we're kind of honing in on here, and we're going to be finished in just a minute. I'm willing to come to your your come in on your terms. That is trust, and that is humility. And God says, if you're going to get anywhere with me, those are the two things that have to be present in any relationship with me. We we closed last week with the suggested prayer for you that if you would begin to pray in all sincerity, God, if you can be known, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. That is a very humble prayer. And I challenged you and said, look, if you could just lay your obstacles aside long enough to just humble yourself and say, God, if you can be known, if you can be known, if it really is true, and and listen, none of this conversation happens if we're not seeking truth. I can, have, I can deal with any atheist, any agnostic. I can handle any objection. I can respect your position as long as you seek the truth. But if the only thing you're doing is saying, I'm an atheist because I don't want anybody to push their religion on me, that's not intellectually honest. You're not, you're not really approaching the conversation with integrity. But if you approach the conversation with integrity and you say, I am seeking truth, and you're willing to humble yourself and say, if you can be known, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. I'm not going to come with my whole thing and set it on the table and say, God, you've got to deal with this, and you've got you to help me understand that, and you're going to have to change this. But instead, just come and say, God, these are the things that are on my plate, and these are problems, and you know how some of these things have broken me, and this is hard, but God, I'm going to take it all, and in this moment, I want to know you more than I want to know the answer to any question that I've got. It's just a fancy way of saying, God, I'm coming to you on your terms. I trust, and I'm going to humble myself enough to take all this stuff that has been an obstacle and to say to you, you know what, if those represent my terms, I'll lay them aside. If you can be known, I want to know you. Let me ask you this question as we close this morning. What do you have to lose? The young man that spoke before we, I got up here, his name is Chris. And you might be like Chris, and that might be your battle, you know, that you... You can talk to some people and, and you can shred them with their, your arguments. You're so good at the conversation. You, you know, you just slay Christians with your whole thing about, I don't believe in Jesus and I'm, I, you know, and this is why. But come on. At the end of the argument, even though you may be able to slay Christians and out-argue them, when you walk away, even though on the outside you've conquered, on the inside there's something that's nagging at you. And you don't tell anybody that. But I know it's there. And you know how I know it's there? Because God so loved you. He will not leave you alone. And no matter how many of the arguments bounce off your exterior, on the inside of you, there are things going on that you don't talk to anybody about. And you've got questions and you want to believe that there's a God. And you know he's there. And you know he desires a relationship with you. you, There's a lot of stuff you can't explain. It's like, man... And you just want to scream sometimes. And I understand. You just want to scream, God, leave me alone. But he won't. And you know why he won't? Because this is personal. Because he loves you. And you are the apple of his eye. And you may not even believe that he exists, but he loves you. 
God loves you and he won't let the tension go away until you are ready to come to him on his terms. And then he is going to do something that is extraordinarily personal, extraordinarily personal for you and in you and through you. You want to spend another season of your life going through life, asking all these questions and not really having the answers? You want to spend another season of your life just running away from this nagging thing on the inside of you when you know there's something to it. You want to spend another season of your life beating up on people with all the arguments and you walk away from the argument, you go, you know, I know I just kicked their rear end, but, but this thing that's going on on the inside of me, I can't kick it. I can't get rid of it. I wish it would leave me alone, but it won't. You're going to let happen to you what happened to Chris and let the decisions of a 17-year-old kid determine the outcome of the rest of your life? You're going to let something that happened five years ago determine the outcome of the rest of your life? Or are you going to listen to what's going on inside you and say, you know what, I will, I'll do two things. I will trust and I will be humble. And I will take every question I've got right now in an effort to know the truth and I will set it down. And I will pray, God, if you can be known, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to all my questions. It's about trust, and it's about humility. And your questions are not ever probably going to all go away. And your objections, while some of them may be huge, in order for you to really get to the place you want to be, some of them, they're not going to go away, but they might get smaller because God will get personal with you. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And when we do that, you have an opportunity to come forward and say, I'm tired of running. Uh, and yeah, I got some questions, and I'm just going to drag them into this whole thing with me and trust that God's going to figure it out. And he will. But if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to tell you a couple of things. You are in a place that loves you dearly. You are in a place that has a leadership team that has prayed fervently over you. I mean, when we come together as an elder group and we pray for this church and we pray for the people who don't even go to church here we pray through tears for you that you will come to know Christ every decision we make, every step we take is all done in an effort so that you will know who Jesus is. You are in a place with a people who love you and accept you just the way you are with every objection, every question that you've got. We don't expect that they're going to go away. We're just saying God is good. Jesus died on a cross. That forgives you. Come on in. And if you want that, you respond here in a minute and you give your life to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, It gets pretty complex as long as we can make you a category, but at the point that you become very personal, this is a whole different deal. And so this morning, Father, I pray that you would, you would get uncomfortably personal with somebody in this room. I pray that you would do business with them and that that would be done on your terms because that's the only way this can happen. Father, we stand here humbled, in your presence. We don't deserve your righteousness. We don't deserve a right standing with you. We, truth be told, are scum of the earth. But somehow you see past all that and you love us. You pick us up out of the miry clay. You set us on a path and you say, you know what? You have the opportunity to live your life to my glory. So you just go take your best shot every day. So God, that's what we do. And we are so thankful 
that's how you deal with us. Lord, we love you. We don't have anything else to say. We just love you. You're awesome. You're amazing. We are fortunate to be able to call you our Heavenly Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.